Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Good afternoon. I am your host, Rochelle Poulton, and welcome to Legitimate. Uh, today's topic is an awesome one. We're going to cover the rackets. So these are all of the ways that companies make money that they probably shouldn't be up to. So the things that make me super angry as a consumer rights attorney. And with us, we have an awesome, legitimate guest, Michael Poulton, who's also my husband. Well, thanks, babe sickle. <laughs> <laughs> as both being lawyers, we just thought we would take today and have a fun episode to cover all of the things that uh, we want to vent about uh, because people should know. We have a tremendous amount of knowledge in all of these areas, and we have each seen uh, some pretty crazy stuff go on in the past regarding some of our favorite topics. So we're just going to jump right in uh, to HOAs. Yeah. Man, <laughs> so, that's a great one. <laughs> yes. So, Mike, why don't you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your history with HOAs? Well, um, I'm an attorney, and I've represented a number of clients against HOAs, and I've lived in a few myself. I can say that I have had not one single smooth experience with an HOA in my entire life. I think every single HOA I've interacted with, either for myself or on behalf of my clients, has done something irrational, illegal, or ridiculous to try to jerk people around just simply because they can. It seems to be the MO for these kinds of organizations. And certainly I understand that HOAs do have their purpose. There are advantages to having an HOA. Uh, Many people prefer to live in an HOA, but that does not lessen the fact that when you turn your neighbors into the government um, and give them control over you and your property, sometimes they're going to jerk you around, and it can be pretty difficult to get out from under it when it happens. Yes. So for a few of the fun stats on HOAs, there's over 9,000 HOAs in Arizona, and about half of all Arizona homeowners live in an HOA. So about 3.5 million people currently pay an HOA uh, in addition to owning their own home. So monthly fees on HOAs aren't really the problem. Like if you've got dues, let's say they're 100 bucks a month over the course of a 30-year mortgage, 36,000 bucks, probably not that big of a deal. I don't know. I lived in an HOA with a $650 a month fee for my condo. Yes. And... Just if it's three hundred, you were already paying one hundred eight thousand dollars over the life of that loan. So in your case, you could have just bought another house yes. instead of paying the HOA easily. Now, for the audience's benefit, that was a high-rise condominium. High-rise buildings are very expensive to maintain and operate. So high-rise HOA dues typically are very high. That really was not an unreasonable rate for the structure that it was in, and that was only about an eighteen hundred square foot condo. So six hundred fifty dollars a month that you have to pay forever in order to continue to own that property is really quite a burden. And it's something to consider before you move into any kind of a a multifamily property like that that has a lot of maintenance and operating costs. Yes, beware of the HOA fees. Um, There's been a a fun shift that we've seen towards the end of 2019 with HOA dues, where some HOAs are randomly shifting their monthly assessments into quarterly assessments. So a $100 a month payment was fine, but now you have a quarterly $300 a month payment. And those kinds of shifts kind of get a little bit complicated when your HOA monthly assessment is a lot higher than that. So you're looking at making a car payment every quarter 
as yes. opposed to something a little bit less manageable. So uh, beware and keep an eye out for those kinds of notices coming because they will not process your payment if you try to continue your monthly payment because they consider that a partial payment. <laughs> Which they may or may not actually legally be allowed to reject, but they're going to do it anyways because you have to take them to court to make them. It's kind of insane. <laughs> the other problem that we see a lot is with CCNR enforcement issues. So for yeah. homeowner associations, they're all governed by a legal document called your conditions, covenant, and restrictions. You Sometimes get a copy, and if you've ever gotten a copy or ever looked at it, it's about 50 pages long, probably written in the 70s by the same group of lawyers that wrote all these things that didn't know what they were doing. And there's a lot of provisions in there regarding what you can and can't do with your property, how they can charge you money, what the collection costs are, all of that is located in there. So we have seen things from uh, HOA trying to make someone repaint their house uh, simply because paint was chipping or because it wasn't the right shade of white. Yeah, here's a fun one. So uh, HOAs are allowed to restrict exterior colors of homes, and many of them adopt a color palette that you're allowed to choose from to paint your house. So they've got maybe a handful of colors to choose from that are considered acceptable in the neighborhood. Uh, There have been instances, I've, I've represented clients in disputes with HOAs on two different counts there. One of them uh, the HOA changed the approved color palette completely. They eliminated all the old colors and put together a new color scheme that was the new approved color scheme for the neighborhood and then tried to force this guy to paint his half of the duplex the new color after he had recently repainted it one of the previous approved colors. And he was absolutely not having it. Uh, he was willing to pay me more to get out of doing that than it would have cost to just repaint the duplex. But bottom line is, he didn't want the HOA jerking him around like that and forcing the repainting of the exterior of a condo that had just been painted an approved color. This is the kind of stuff HOAs do pretty regularly. The, your paint fades, they'll make you repaint it. Your paint chips, they'll make you repaint it. Uh, they change their mind on what colors they like, they'll make you repaint it. And this all goes through, I think, their architectural design committee. Yes. Uh, some BS name like that, which and is it, always fun. So if you're on one of those mind, committees, though. please be reasonable. <laughs> yes, exactly. The committee is just some of your neighbors, and the HOA board is just some of your neighbors. These are just the people who live in your neighborhood, and they are making you do these things. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I always recommend be friendly with your HOA because they can ruin your life and force you to move. And if your HOA is unfriendly and unreasonable, take it over. It's a democratic organization. Run. Band together with your neighbors and oust the people who are Run jerking you for around. the election. Get elected. If you don't <laughs> like right. it, change it. That's what you can do. That's right. There are many, many organizations that are designed to help Arizona homeowners who are in an HOA that want to change it. One of them is HOA uh, Coalition. So it's you can go to their website. It's HOA Truth. And it is a nonprofit organization, and they do a lot of uh, lobbying on behalf of homeowners and deal primarily with HOA laws. And they're just an awesome resource for people who have minor disputes that don't necessarily need to hire an attorney. Because usually if you're in a dispute with an HOA over something like a fine for weeds, again, it's the consultation with the lawyer is going to be a lot higher than just paying the fine. But if you're like a repeat victim, then you definitely need to to seek some assistance. Yeah. So weeds in the yard are another big one. Uh, we see that happen a lot. Unauthorized plants, 
unauthorized potted plants. Unauthorized patio decorations. Bird feeders. Plant hangers. Dog runs. It just, the list goes on. It's insane the things that you can get in trouble on with your HOA. So the worst type of consumer is the informed consumer. So (laughs) if you're curious about what your HOA can and can't do, read the CCNRs. They are public record. You can request a copy. Most uh, HOAs these days have an online portal that you can just download it. There's a bunch of stuff on there, like additional rules and guidelines and stuff. Well, and you probably got a copy of it when you bought the place. If you live in an HOA, chances are they gave you, you a copy. If you bought it recently enough, uh, you know, not 30 years ago, there's a good chance you already have a copy of those documents with your purchase paperwork. Yes. And if you're not sure what it says, ask a lawyer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think there's another point about HOAs that we should bring up, and that is HOAs that are still controlled by the declarant. Totally different ballgame. If you've got a relatively if you've got a relatively new development and less than half of the units typically have been sold yet, then chances are your HOA is completely controlled by the developer. There is no democratically elected board. You can't run to oust them. You really have no control at all over what they do or what decisions they make because when the developer established that HOA and started building the place, they set the rules, and the rules say that they remain the king until the place is pretty much completely done. So that can get to be a real challenge, and I did own a condo in a development that was uh, controlled by the declarant. Most of the owners were very upset with many of the decisions that were being made and the way money was being spent and the way the assessments were being charged. There's nothing we could do about it. I sold the place. Yeah, sometimes it's really your only option. Yep. So we're going to talk about late fees, demand letters, and attorney fees. So there are a few HOA law firms that represent HOAs specifically. And so the problem isn't necessarily what happens when everything with your HOA is going well. Most people don't ever have a problem with their HOA. But when you do have a problem, it can escalate out of control financially. So when you fail to pay assessments, sometimes people just get into financial trouble or they just forget, whatever the case may be. If you miss an HOA payment uh, on your monthly or quarterly assessments, there's going to be late fees. There's going to be demand letters that get sent. And those things incur additional costs. Like sometimes your late fee is five bucks a day. Sometimes it's $15 a month. Whatever the case may be, you're going to be charged that. And every time they write a demand letter or send you a demand letter, that demand letter came from an attorney. So usually the fee for that demand letter that you got is somewhere between 75 and 150 bucks because that's deemed acceptable practice. And your HOA um total bill can explode over the period of a year. So in Arizona, there is a law that allows HOAs to foreclose on your property judicially, ARS 33-1256. Everyone should look that up and be totally terrified by this because they can foreclose on you if you're late for more than a year or you owe more than $1,200. That's it. They can issue a foreclosure. And worse, with the change in legislation last year, even if you pay all of the money, they can still foreclose on your property. They do not have to uh, stop the foreclosure action. They can actually proceed with it. That hasn't been fully litigated or contested yet, but watch out because it's a big deal. So one of the trends that I see with these foreclosure lawsuits 
or just lawsuits for non-payment is a bill for 400 bucks easily becomes a bill for 5000 because you have attorney's fees and late fees and penalties and interest that get tacked on to the balance. So it's a really big deal when you start missing HOA assessment payments because that, that bill balloons quite quickly. Bonus, you can't discharge that in, dank- in bankruptcy. It's a lien uh, and it's a statutory lien. So <laughs> that's not something you can get rid of uh, via bankruptcy. And it follows the house yes. forever. So you're going to have to get that paid before you can sell it or when you sell it. Or they will foreclose on you. Yes. So one of the more horrific trends that I've seen was, uh, you know, hypothetical. So let's say we had this lady. She's in her 70s. She owns her home. Uh, she lives on Social Security and she couldn't make her HOA payments. So she's trying to get caught up. But they sued her and she owes $3,000 on uh, or $7,500 on a $100 a month HOA uh, that she missed payments on for, you know, 16 months. So a $1,600 bill became a $7,000 bill. So she's offered to pay what she can uh, to the full balance to try to get caught up and stay current. So she's trying to make current HOA payments and trying to, you know, make voluntary payments on the past due balance, but they rejected all of her voluntary payments on the past due balance because they considered it a partial payment and she can't make payments. And so they've decided to uh, initiate foreclosure on her property because they prefer to have their money now. So in other words, she's willing to pay on an ongoing basis, willing to pay the amount of actual assessments that are behind, can do that, but they refuse to take the money because they would rather take the house. Yes. Yeah. That that seems par for the course for some of the property management companies that are effectively operating HOAs in the Valley these days. Um, seems to be an MO that they're using. And I think that gets to another point that we should talk about briefly before we move on from HOAs. And that is uh, HOAs are often not really being operated by your neighbors on a daily basis. There are property management companies that provide HOA services specifically, and they'll come in and sell themselves to your HOA uh, as a company that will just do it all for them. And doing it all includes the enforcement of the CCNRs, and it includes collecting the money, and it includes uh, evicting people for closing on their properties uh, and selling them at auction when they decide that that's appropriate. And because these people don't have to live next door to you, and really aren't very accountable, except to the few board members who choose to show up to the HOA meetings, they will do these things because it's in their best interest profit-wise. The more revenue they crank through and the more work they perform collecting the money, the more they get paid. So very often there's an actual business motive for the HOA management company to behave poorly with respect to the residents. It's not a very good situation. It comes from the lack of accountability that that results from multiple stages of of management and uh, lack of participation and control of these HOAs by the residents. Yeah. And, you know, final point on that, you know, those default interest rates in your CCNRs can be insane, like 18% and higher. So you're accruing uh, a lot of interest on just late assessment payments as well. So it just continues to accrue and accrue and accrue. So if you're in a bad HOA situation, don't wait to talk to a professional. Get it early, get in it fast, deal with it because it doesn't go away. These are not issues that resolve themselves. You need to do something and you need to act now. And that's why 
It's a racket. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the other things I wanted to talk about are judgments. Judgments in general. A lot of people have confusion about uh, how long a judgment is enforceable. And it's 10 years in Arizona. And they can be renewed for another 10 years. And how much longer they can be renewed after that is still out for debate. So uh, gray area. So if you've got a judgment, it's not going to go away. They record them against all of your personal uh, property and assets. It's kind of a big deal. Don't let judgments hang out there. But my favorite racket of 2019 was the rise of the repossession repossession default judgment. So it used to be if you had a car and you couldn't afford it and you did a voluntary repo, you could just simply turn in the car You would have a balance that you owed, you'd pay it or settle it, and you'd move on with your life. Well, the system today has changed. They do not really sell those cars for a whole lot of money, and your deficiency balance can be in the tens of thousands of dollars. Like most of your loan balance. Like most of your loan balance. They get pocket change for the car when they sell it at an auction out behind their own building that nobody shows up to. Sell it to their friends. It's not quite that bad. (laughs) It's a bigger racket. (laughs) They all agree they're not going to pay much for that car. Yes. So that way it gets repurchased and goes back into the stream of used vehicles. And then they collect essentially the entire loan balance from you, uh, get a judgment for it, and record it against your property. Yes. They all use a public auction uh, that's considered a dealer auction. So every dealer can just go there and pick up these used cars that have all been you know, gone through a pretty streamlined system for evaluation to assess damage to the vehicle, condition of the vehicle. They sell it on a Wednesday afternoon to a dealer who bought it, obviously, because they could make a profit on it. And then they pass on none of that savings to you. So you can have a $20,000 car that gets sold at auction for 6500 bucks and be stuck with a $14,000 deficiency balance. And now they will actually sue you for it. In the past, they wouldn't sue you. So you could get away with holding out and doing a statute of limitations argument or something like that, and it would just go away. But that's not the case anymore. They just file suit. So they traded in one secured collateral interest for another. An undersecured collateral interest for an oversecured collateral interest. Because if you own a house... They'll record that judgment against you, and they will get their money when you sell that house eventually. Yes, and that will judgment is good for a decade and can be renewed. And you're looking at uh, interest and attorney's fees on that accruing every single year. So they can garnish your wages. They can levy your assets. Yes, they could foreclose on your property if they really wanted to. I mean, you have homestead rights and all sorts of stuff like that. But it gets pretty tricky when you're dealing with these repossession judgments. They're just a nightmare. Uh, People pay attention to repossessions, be upset about it. Uh, Do not just turn in your vehicle and think that you're, you know, the dealership's going to work with you or get an attorney involved. They're not going to work with you. They're going to work you. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's what they're doing. It's pretty disturbing the type of, and the number, just the sheer number of these lawsuits that are happening. And you're looking at default judgments left and right because people didn't, it doesn't seem legitimate at all that you could be able to sue somebody for that much money on a car they don't own. <laughs> yeah, after taking the car back and selling it. So if somebody's in a position where they cannot keep their car, they've got mm-hmm. a, a car payment they simply are not going to be able to afford and they are going to lose the car, how should they handle that to avoid this problem? 
you're looking at private sale, you know, selling it and then paying off the balance to the dealership because you're going to get way more money that way. Or, you know, look at your entire financial condition and see if bankruptcy is a better option because there's no good way to solve this problem because they're not willing to work with you because they are going to get their money. Because they don't have to work with you. Yep. Yeah. What about, uh, what if you, what if you're underwater on your car? What if you've bought a car uh, and it's worth less now than what your loan balance is and you're not going to be able to keep it? How do you get out of that? You don't. Okay. So you would have to like do a private sale and bring cash to the transaction from somewhere else. Just come up with the money because it's better to come up with that money somehow and get rid of that car by selling it yourself than it is to let them take it from you. Absolutely. Yeah. It's gotten out of control. Uh, It's such a racket right now. So be aware of those contracts where you've you've got a car and you want a new car or a new to you car and you turn it into the dealership and they give you they just finance the whole thing. So you're paying for both cars, right? You still owed money on the other car, it was upside down and now you have a new car, so now you're paying $30,000 for a Kia. So yeah, a negative value trade in. You've got a car that's underwater, you bring it in, you want a new one, they roll your your underwater balance from the first one into your loan on the new one. Yes, that happens all the time. And people really don't realize that that's what they're doing. They think they're paying trading. They think they're trading in their car, getting some kind of credit for it. It's actually being a burden and costing them more money. Yeah, they do get a credit for the value of the car, but it tends to not really matter that much at the end of the day. We see it happen more and more regularly and interest rates on cars are, you know, going up and the average monthly payment on a new car is over $600. So you're just kind of in a world of hurt right now in, in terms of cars. So just be, you know, cautious. Make sure you're looking at the fine print. The rise of the 10-year car note is coming soon, which is insane because there's no way your car is actually going to last that long. Nobody keeps cars for 10 years these days. Some, some I used do. to. Yeah. yeah, I used to be a 10-year car guy, but I don't know. These days, I think people are not doing that as much. Well, they have so much electronics and so many things can go wrong in the new cars that it's hard to keep them maintain for the way you used to like you could do your own oil change now it's like where where do you put the oil (laughs) like where does that go in this car i have no idea i need a special tool for that like i was going to talk back on that but i have not changed the oil on any of our new vehicles myself (laughs) yeah i I don't even want to know where it's at i did my truck once but (laughs) so manly (laughs) so moving on to fun other rackets landlord tenant acts I can't have a show about rackets without talking about more real estate. So I deal a lot with pre-move-out issues and then post-move-out damages. So so here we're talking about leasing an apartment, leasing a house, and things don't go well at the end. Yeah, yeah. it's off to a rough start. So before you move out, if you're going to terminate the lease, uh, there are a lot of fees involved with terminating early. Like usually you're going to have a concession repayment you're going to have to pay, which was a percentage or a dollar amount off of your rent every month as an incentive to move in. You'll have to pay an early termination fee. You'll have to pay a failure to give 60-day notice fee. And right there is usually about five grand on no matter what you're, what you're renting. Average rental rates right now are about fourteen fifty five. dollars a month in Arizona. So that's a lot of money that you're looking at paying just to break your lease. So most landlords are pretty reasonable if you talk to them in advance, but 
Um, just because you talked to a property manager and they said that they weren't going to charge you, get it in writing. Have them sign something that says that. Work that out in advance. You never really want to be shocked when you get that bill. Because if you just move out and they get an eviction, it's a judgment. So they will cram everything that they possibly can into that judgment. So rent, concession, late fees, attorney fees. And then they're going to charge you interest on it at a default rate that's higher than whatever interest rate you would otherwise be paying. Something like 18%. They'll put that in the contract so that if you can't pay them, you owe them more money. That's the deal. Because that makes sense. If you can't pay, you owe more. That's how that works. But the whole uh, issue of post-move out damages after eviction, I think that's the, when, when you and I were planning this show the other night, that's what stuck out to us as being the real racket in, in leasing and property management these days. When somebody gets evicted, uh, very often the eviction paperwork, the service of process will be done by posting it on the door to the apartment that you're no longer in. So then you don't show up to court because you don't actually know there's a court date. You don't know for sure that you're actually being evicted. And since you don't show up, they get exactly what they ask for from the judge with no opposition. And then once they get that judgment for all of their fees, all of the rent you didn't pay, uh, any damages that they're already aware of to the property, then they will go back into that property. They'll take all your stuff out of it and they will tear the place apart looking for every single thing that they can possibly argue you might have damaged. And then they're going to go back to court. They're going to sue you again a second time after evicting you, alleging that you trashed the place. And they're going to post that lawsuit on the door to the apartment you were evicted from. So you're not even going to know you got sued again. And then they're going to go to court and you're not going to be there because you don't even know what's happening. And they're going to get a giant judgment against you for the carpet, the kitchen cabinets, the stovetop, the bathroom, Every single thing on new paint, every single thing they can come up with in that apartment that they can possibly claim you damaged, they're going to try to make you pay for after they evicted you. Yeah, and (laughs) some of the most outrageous things that I've seen uh, cleaning bills for, $20 to clean a light bulb, uh, $70 (laughs) to clean the baseboards in the kitchen. So it was like 80 bucks a room. I've seen uh, $7 per uh, square foot of paint on the walls. So repainting a 3,500 square foot house costs nine grand. Um, You just see some pretty outrageous things on these post-move out damages. So do not just leave your house or apartment. This is a conversation and negotiation uh, regarding how things are going to end. Always do a walkthrough. Always take photos. Uh, If you clean the carpet, you better have proof that you did because they will bill you for that again. They will charge you for everything that they can. And if you have pets in Arizona, it's already hard to find uh, rental properties that allow multiple pets. But if you do have cats or dogs, they're really big sticklers on the bodily functions of these animals. So they will nail you for, you know, cat smell, dog smell. And if there's carpet, they are going to charge you to replace all of it. They love the smell because you can't prove or disprove it. Yeah, in court. There's no way to prove smell. No way to prove smell. What are they going to do? Take an air sample? (laughs) (laughs) Bring it to court and let it loose? (laughs) There's just no way to prove or disprove that. So you're not there after you move out. So you can't contest it. They have a maintenance guy come up to the stand and testify that he walked in there and uh, it smelled really bad like a cat box. 
Well, did it? He testifies to that every other week in justice court. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of a ridiculous racket. So if you, um, it's pretty easy to tell whether or not the property management company that you're renting from and going to work with is someone you should work with because you can tell from their customer service on the front end if you're going to have problems. If you're having problems moving in, you're going to have a thousand times more problems moving out. That's a very fair point. I was about to say the opposite. I was going to say be very cautious because the person who shows you that apartment and signs you up is not the person interpreting and enforcing your lease. That is a salesperson whose job it is to welcome you and convince you that this is a great place to live. So, of course, they're going to be friendly, and of course, it's going to go smoothly on the front end. But at the back end, it's going to be somebody completely different who you've never met or heard of who's telling you you trashed the place and owe them thousands of dollars. But you make a very good point, Rochelle, and that is a lot of these places aren't even smooth on the front end. Mm -hmm. A lot of them aren't even good at the sales aspect. If you've got problems just getting started, if the salespeople are edgy, if they're uncooperative, put up a lot of roadblocks, make it hard for you, they're aggressive. Don't live there. Don't Don't do it. You don't want to do business with those people. You you don't want to end up under their thumb with that kind of an arrangement. There are other places to live. Just because you like the apartment doesn't mean you should get into a business relationship with the people who happen to run it. Yes. And the giant red flag these days are around the Tempe area where you see these housing agreements. If you see something that says a housing agreement, please don't sign it, run away. Yeah. Uh, the housing agreements are August to May. They are firm commitments and you are guaranteeing that no matter what happens, you are paying for that rent and that they will never be able to get another tenant to replace you. And you are on the hook for however many thousands of dollars that is, 17 grand, 20 grand, whatever the case may be. And they send it to you with the application. So you are signing the lease agreement and the application at the same time, usually with the move-in date of the same day or tomorrow. Uh, And those are pretty nasty contracts to get out of. They report to your credit, and it doesn't matter if you didn't provide any proof of income or proof of who you were or uh, didn't even give them a security deposit or never even got keys. You didn't even know what unit you were living in. These things are happening, and there are law firms happily enforcing those types of contracts. Yeah, the moment you sign it, even if you never took possession, you are stuck with the entire balance for the entire year. Um, And it's pretty enforceable, too, because the reality is they can't replace you in that kind of student housing. The only people who move into those places are people who move in for an academic year schedule, and they all move in at the same time. So bottom line is, if you skip out on that, um, even 30 seconds after you just signed the contract, uh, they're not going to be able to fill your slot, and they will be able to prove in court that they lost the money. So they're going to get it from you. Boo-hoo. I hate those contracts. Please don't sign them. (laughs) If I could push a button and get rid of all of those contracts, I would have already done it because they're so predatory and it's really offensive that they exist and that they're being enforced. I do generally agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like them in case you didn't get that up. 
So we're going to move on to student loans. Student loans. Oh my gosh. I feel like I talk about student loans so regularly. You do, Babe Sickle. I hear about student loans every single day. (laughs) It's such a a huge problem. I mean, they increase at $3,000 a second right now. Uh, We're looking at a $1.6, $1.7 trillion problem. Lots of people are going into defaults. And the things that you should know are private versus federal. Private loans, you there's no real way to tell whether or not you have a private or federal loan without paperwork. But when you get into student loans and they're in default, your options are not very good. And the options for resolving student loans are vast and they are many. So if you're struggling with that payment, if you're late, for the federal government, the collection agency is the IRS. They are the worst debt collector on the planet. Or the very best, depending on your definition. If the IRS wants your money, they're going to get it. They are going to get it. They are going to levy your tax refunds, which they call the offset program, and they can garnish your wages if they know where you work. Without a judgment, right? They don't need a judgment. Yep. They can just start taking the money straight out of your paycheck right from your employer to pay your student loans for you. And Social Security. Yep. Take your Social Security to pay your student loans. Yes. Now, that's a thought, isn't it? That's terrifying. Yeah. I I don't think people really understand that at all. Like, uh, it doesn't seem like something you can garnish and it's protected from every other type of creditor. Only student loans can garnish your Social Security, which is madness. They should not, like, come on. It's already not really a lot for some people. So in your old age, if you have not managed throughout your lifetime to pay back your educational expenses, they will take your social safety net money in retirement to pay for the college degree that didn't make you money during your lifetime. Call your congressman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have a legislature, and that's the only way that shift's going to change. There's been a lot of promising developments in the world of bankruptcy. Some bankruptcy judges are being super awesome and writing some really well-informed opinions out there. Um, So if you're a bankruptcy attorney and you want to know more about adversary proceedings and student loans, email me at legitimate at azclg.com. I'm happy to talk to you about how you can help people. get out of those stupid student loans that they clearly can't afford. Uh, The same thing too for just dealing with private. Private will sue you if you're in default. They'll sue you. They'll get a judgment. They'll secure it against your assets and they will garnish you. And it's a whole big thing. And they'll do it at an elevated default interest rate like we were talking about before. 18%. Yep. Sometimes 30. If you can't pay them the money, you owe them more money. Yes, and it grows and is capitalized exponentially. So it's pretty terrifying how big those things get. Um, There are always solutions, always options for dealing with student loans. Um, It just depends on what happened. Like in Arizona, Arizona Summit. Arizona Summit School of Law or Arizona Summit Law School, whatever they call themselves. Phoenix School of Law previously, ESL. (laughs) We had fun nicknames for them. And uh, so they have gone out of business. And a lot of people went there. Their education cost was almost $300,000 for a juris doctor that they can't afford. And a lot of those people can't practice law. So they officially will close in May of 2020 after their last class graduates from that place in the middle of the country. Is it Nevada or oh, North, right. North Dakota is where their teach out program is. I think they had 18 students and I think they're down to like six or seven and they're going to graduate in May. So I think it's worth a, a 10 second summary of yes. that background for people who didn't hear about it. And that is uh, Arizona Summit 
was located, it was a law school that was located in a high rise in downtown Phoenix. It's a private for profit university that was part of a, a group of several uh, private for profit schools. Infala. Yes. And uh, they uh, collapsed business wise. It's not publicly known. I don't think exactly what happened financially internally, but they got locked out of their commercial lease uh, for their campus and were forced. Um, forced to confront their insolvency at that point and were unable to continue teaching students because they did not have access to their facilities. So when that occurred, they ended up working on a teach-out plan where their students would transfer to different institutions to complete their degrees, and the degrees would still ostensibly be Arizona Summit degrees, but the process would be completed at different campuses, and that's just about wrapped up. But the core issue is the vast majority of their graduates, I think it's safe to say the vast majority, have not been able to find gainful employment as licensed attorneys. So their education cost uh, can't be repaid through the profession that it was incurred to pay for. Uh, And that right there is one of the scenarios that many people are facing with student loans in this country right now. Expensive for-profit education that ended up not being a good investment because it didn't lead to a career path that justified the expense. That's happened not just in in law by any means. This was just one example and a small one compared to all of the trade school programs, all of the for-profit associates degree and bachelor degree programs. Like 40% of those private private for-profit campuses have closed since 2011. It's, it's been staggering. Staggering. And, and they close because their students are unable to find adequate employment to pay for the degree. And it becomes known that going there is not a path to financial success. And they lose accreditation and they yes. shut down and get sued. But it really only – a lot of these lawsuits that come out with AG's offices only address private loans. They do not address federal loans. So with Summit specifically, because they close in May – all of you who have graduated or maybe didn't graduate or were not able to pass the bar, you can apply for the school closure application in June of 2020. So if you're wondering how you're going to pay back that $300,000, give that a shot. You should probably be entitled to a partial discharge, if not a complete discharge. Um, The form is available online. If you need assistance, of course, this is my area of practice. Contact me. Happy to help. But you should definitely look into that for all of you ASU Summit grads. Yes. Not ASU, sorry. We went <laughs> Arizona to ASU. Summit. Arizona yes. Summit. Uh, grads, we definitely feel for you. There's a lot of sympathy out there for you in the legal community. And, um, you know, just let us know what we can do to help. And, of course, anyone who graduated from any other private educational program with a similar problem. It's been a massive issue nationwide, and it's going to continue to be an issue over probably the entire rest of our lives. It, yeah. it seems like until there's a a comprehensive political solution to the issue of student debt and educational expense, this is just going to be a perpetual perpetual financial concern for a lot of Americans. Yes. But definitely keep in mind that although student loans may be very difficult to discharge and certainly have a lot of challenges associated with them that other types of debt do not, it's not necessarily a hopeless situation. In fact, more often than not, there is some kind of relief. Yep. And especially if it's a situation like the Arizona Summit or other uh, for-profit institutions that have gone under, there are paths to obtaining relief from those debts, but they make it hard to find. 
Yes, it's definitely a hide the ball, choose your own adventure, and then try the adventure again and again and again and again. I mean, the processing time on a borrower defense application is somewhere between 24 and 36 months. It's insane. They're just... So in other words, somebody who has a good case for being relieved from their student loan because the institution failed and they can't get a job, it's going to take... You said 18 to 24 months? 24 to 36. 20, 24 to 36 months from when you submit all the paperwork on that until you get a decision on whether or not you're going to get some relief from that debt. And it's not just to set it and forget it. Like, you have to follow up with it. They will just close your application randomly, by accident. All sorts of things happen. They got a new form that you didn't use properly, so they rejected your application. Yep. Um, all sorts of things like that happen. So you got to really stay on it. It is a bureaucracy. It's all about the paperwork. A Kafka-esque bureaucracy, indeed. <laughs> Cell phone bill termination fees. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. <laughs> so I see on credit reports, I don't know how many credit reports I've read. Let's call it a few ten thousands or so. It's a lot. But dealing with cell phone companies, I've seen them all. T-Mobile, Verizon, Sprint, they're all on there. They're all, and those fees are huge. Like, they used to be, 200 bucks and now it's 1200, 5 grand, 9000 and it's for termination fees and usually because you didn't turn back in that cell phone that you financed because you don't own that phone like you used to. Yeah, it's not cell yours. Phones cost as much as computers these days. Yes. We pay for a cell phone what we used to pay for a laptop. And we still break cell phones pretty frequently. Yes. So, you know, you break one um, if you didn't have insurance on it, they'll give you another one. You're still not going to pay that much per month, but you're still paying on your old one you broke too. And uh, if you decide to change carriers before your contract term is up, uh, although these days, I guess most of the carriers aren't even doing contract terms for the service. Oh, yeah, they are. Okay. Well, then I'm lucky we're on T-Mobile and we don't have to deal with that. But yep. you still have to deal with the device financing because yes. that's where the real money is for them. Most of what you're paying these days is for the device, not for the service. And you still owe for that device if you change services. So you're going to have to end up paying for that phone you're going to keep that you didn't give back to them. Yeah. So if you've got collections uh, for cell phone bill terminations, you can turn back in the equipment and they will give you the credit that they charged you for. So you can reduce it that way. Obviously, if you didn't keep the phone or you don't have it anymore, you can always negotiate with them. But these companies are not really set up for that. They're, they're utilities. Uh, they just want you to pay. <laughs> nobody nobody you talk to has authorization to give you a deal. They don't even know what you're talking about. It's like you're asking. <laughs> you could be asking for Skittles and it would make the same effect. Like, I want to pay you for this collection. I don't do that. I don't know who yeah. does that. That's kind of like you get a runaround in yeah. dealing with these cell phone companies. So just be wary of those contracts. They're way too long. <laughs> yeah, there's no way you can read the whole thing. I, I'll be honest, I did not read my entire T-Mobile contract, I, but I, I just assume there's a bunch of stuff in there I wouldn't like if I paid attention to it. And you really can't argue with it, so they don't. Yeah, I don't have they, a choice. Yeah, you, you. I mean, you could not use them. I could use a different company with an equivalent contract. Yes, that's pretty much how that works. Yes. Yeah, so some of the fun things included in these contracts are termination fees. Mm -hmm. So uh, usually it's the entire value of your phone service. That is the termination fee, is the entire bill. Yeah, that's that's a great racket. I've seen that on some other contract types. The early termination fee, uh, I actually had one that was, uh, 
this was a copier contract, a copier rental contract for our office where the early termination fee was, I swear to God, 95% of the entire remainder of the contract value. Yep. So if you terminate it early, you just pay them everything you were going to pay them minus 5%. Because they like you. They're giving you a break. (laughs) But you have to give them the copier back right away. Yes. So these cell phone termination fees and termination fees in general are just such a racket. Like they're so ridiculous and they're outrageous and there's not much you can do about them other than to know that they exist and avoid them. Just avoid them. Just don't early terminate things. Expect that you're going to go through entire contract duration and be careful about renewals. That's the other aspect. you got to be careful about automatic renewals and early automatic renewals in recurring contracts. That's you got a lot get of you. these kinds of agreements where if you don't give notice that you're not going to keep doing it, and I don't think this is so much with, with cell phone contracts, but with all kinds of other rental agreements, if you don't give them notice early enough that you're not renewing, it renews again automatically for some extended period of time and maybe even at a higher rate. Yeah, it's usually 90 days. Yeah. you got to cancel 90 days before the end of your contract. So these contracts get really sophisticated. So if you're on the hook for or looking at or you're a small business owner and you're doing this, this is why legal counsel is helpful. Yes, definitely in a business context where you see an awful lot of this stuff, it really does pay to read it. You're not necessarily going to be able to negotiate your way out of the bad terms. It's still going to be a racket. But if you know what game you're playing, then you can come out at least neutral or ahead. Um, by knowing what you're in for and what moves you can't pull. Uh, you can't just walk out on these kinds of agreements, especially in a, in a small business context. Uh, you know, there's no consumer protection at all for anybody doing anything under a business. Nope. Totally different. Yep. So one last topic on good faith payments. So in regards to all of these rackets, yep. all of these things that are going out there. Anybody you're doing business with who's getting money from you. There is a way that when you default and you and default means that you haven't made a payment, usually for more than 180 days, you're in default. That's just an accounting term. And it goes into charge off status, usually collections. And so eventually someone may call you. Just kidding. They're going to call you every day, every hour (laughs) for like years. So when you get these calls and sometimes it's pretty scary when you're talking to someone, they're like, just pay us. Just make a good faith payment. Pay us anything you can. Just pay us pay us 20 bucks. What have you got in your bank account? Give us $5, whatever. Well, they're... Just to show your good faith intention here, just to, as a, as a sign of your commitment to, to good faith and dealing with us straightforwardly, just pay us anything. Just $5 will do it. Well, why in the world would they want $5 from you if they say that you owe them thousands of dollars? Well, you got to think about that. Why is this guy pushing you so hard on the phone to pay him five bucks today when they claim that you owe them $5,000? Well, the answer is you paying them anything, giving them the pocket change that you've got on you right now. That payment has legal significance. Yes. That is of great importance. Do not do it. It is a trick. (laughs) It's a trap. Don't do it. Talk to a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, avoid the good faith payments. I mean, if you're going to pay the whole thing, pay the whole thing. Like if that's how you feel that you need to do and make right with creditors, that's great. But you should talk to a lawyer first because debts expire. There's a lot of junk debt buyers out there and this is how they get you. Yep. They get you to make these good faith payments and they drag it out for decades. Because it's very simple. If you make a payment towards a debt, that is legally construed as an acknowledgement that you owe the debt. Because why in the world would anybody pay something they don't know? That's how the theory goes. 
So if you make that $5 payment, then you are not going to be able to effectively claim later that you don't owe the money. Even with medical debt. Medical medical debt debt is for sure the biggest offender. So when you go to the hospital and they say like, oh, you can prepay your bill for $3,000. How do you want to pay that? And you give them a credit card, great. But you're always going to get another bill. You're just going to get another bill when you leave there. So when you're like, okay, I want to I want to get in a payment plan, will you avoid hitting my credit? And they're like, yeah, sure, sure, sure. We'll put you on a $50 a month payment plan. They're still going to report to your credit. That's just what they do. And if you can never pay that bill off, you are just reaffirming it every single month. Reaffirming it, reaffirming it, reaffirming it. And each reaffirmation extends the statute of limitations and makes it that much more impossible for you to ever claim that it's an invalid debt that you never owed. Because if you've been making periodic payments, a little bit here, a little bit there, every several months for a few years, they will use that against you. The entire reason they got you to make those payments was so they can use it against you. That was the point of those payments, was to use them against you, not to collect that money. It's pocket change. They didn't need their 50 bucks. They needed you to acknowledge that you owe them the whole thing. The whole thing. Like you disputing later that, you know, your insurance should have covered this or they overbilled you for that or they double billed you here. None of that really helps when you've been making payments on the full balance this whole time. Yep. So, you know, just be weary of, you know, those good faith payments. Think twice um, if, before if you do it. If somebody is pressuring you into giving them money and they're making some kind of a vague moralistic argument about why you should pay them that money right now. Just go ahead and hang up. Just don't play that game. <laughs> <laughs> just go ahead and hang up. They're um, tricking you. It's a racket. <laughs> it's a racket. So that is a great point and leads us right into our last topic, which is phone scams. Yep, phone, phone scams. scams. So there's so many in Arizona. Uh, the latest one that I'm seeing is a text message that goes to your phone that tells you you've been sued in another state like Nevada. Have you ever lived in Nevada? No. Why are you getting sued in Nevada? It doesn't even say your name. It just says pay here. Like there's a link that you can click. It looks legitimate. It is not. I guess it looks legitimate if that falls within your definition of looking legitimate. Well, everyone is afraid of court. Everyone gets a little intimidated and it hits a lot of really good trigger spots yes. for people. Yeah. And they wouldn't do it if someone wasn't paying it. Absolutely. Um, so if you're getting a text message about a lawsuit, just just think for a second. Does that sound legitimate? <laughs> no. No, it never does. So don't pay it. Ask a lawyer. They will tell you it's a scam. They'll probably even call the company and find out they don't exist. Um, so just please don't succumb to this. It's new. It's been circling the valley for about three weeks now. It's predatory. As a plaintiff's attorney who does a fair bit of suing day to day, I have found myself needing to do what they call alternative service occasionally. You can't get a process server to find the person you're suing in person and hand them the court paperwork, so you have to get it to them a different way. And I can assure the entire audience that a random text message (laughs) that doesn't include your name, any contact information for the attorneys on the other side, doesn't identify the court or case number that you're in or who the other party is, if it doesn't have that information, that is not legitimate alternative service. There is no way any judge is ever going to approve service by text message that doesn't include 
all of that information so that you can clearly verify the legitimacy of the situation, get in touch with the people responsible for it, and handle it appropriately because that's the entire point of alternative service. Yes. So while it is technically occasionally possible to serve a lawsuit by Facebook, email, text message, whatever method of modern communication we're using, that is very unusual And you will know for sure that it is completely legitimate if that happens to you. There will be no question that it's the real thing. So these fake text message scams do not even think for a second that that might be legit. It's not even close. The other big one is the utility bill. So as things hit, uh, heat up here in the Valley, you may be a victim of a call from APS or uh, Southwest Gas or some utility company locally calling you as a courtesy to tell you they're about to shut off whatever utility, usually your electric bill. So they're like, you are $941 behind on your electric bill and we are here and we're going to shut it off unless you pay us. Utility companies don't call you. And we accept money by PayPal or Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) They don't call. That is not legitimate. And they get people for thousands of dollars every year by doing this. So just remember, call your utility company if you get this call. Log in online and see if you actually owe them the money uh, before you just give a total stranger your debit card over the phone. Like if they're in the field and they're getting ready to shut off your utilities, how are they able to accept payment? Yeah. Well, and I think this gets back to old school scam avoidance advice that's still valid today. And that is if somebody contacts you on the phone or by email Any other method, even if they're in person, uh, if there's any question about whether they're legitimately a representative of the company they say they are, do not deal with them directly. Independently contact that company through their publicly available contact methods and verify that the situation is real and that the person you're dealing with is legitimate. Uh, It's just like if someone claims to be a police officer suspiciously or they call you and they say they're a detective. What are you going to do? You are going to ask them for the agency and say, I am going to call back through your main switchboard. They will work with that. That is expected. And in fact, typically law enforcement officers, if they are legitimate, will tell you to get in touch with their agency and confirm their identity and legitimacy of their investigation so that you can confirm that and avoid these types of scams. If somebody says they're with APS, call APS at their publicly available number and say, hey, this guy says he's from APS. Is he? <laughs> Am I behind? Is my account going to be shut off? <laughs> Just simple things to avoid the scams. The MCSO civil arrest warrant. Scam was big for a while here where you've got MCSO uh, spoof number calling you, telling you that they're going to arrest you unless you pay this debt. And then on the other line, magically, you're getting a call from the debt collector who's saying they'll call off the sheriff if you pay right now. Mm -hmm. That's a really terrifying phone call. Hang up, call a lawyer. And if it's legitimate, you can actually resolve it without getting arrested. And you're probably not going to get arrested because there's probably no debt owed. (laughs) And because you don't get arrested for not paying civil debts. There are very few circumstances where you can be arrested for not paying a debt. Yeah. And that's a debt that you owe essentially as a fine or restitution in a, a court case, a criminal case. If you've got a debt that you could go to jail for not paying, you know that already. Yes. You know the circumstances. You're, You're not going to get surprised by that. No, it's not going to be a shock. So the IRS calls, those are out and about again. The IRS calling you, telling you you owe them money and that they're going to levy everything if you don't pay them right now. Just call the IRS. 
see what's going on. It's pretty terrifying, all of these scams. Um, they tend to prey on the older population, and they're really starting to target teenagers too with fun new scams of download this thing, give us your bank account, you know, send us a text of your debit card. So educate your kids, educate your parents, educate your grandparents, your great-grandparents. Uh, just be on the lookout for these kinds of phone scams. Uh, Valley is a huge place, and we want to avoid as many of these calls as we can. So that's why we're telling you all about the rackets. <laughs> so those are the things that bug us the most these days. Um, those are the issues that I, I see on an ongoing basis. And I think that does it for this this episode. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary. We could spend all day talking about oh, yeah. the nuanced details of how people get screwed over in business and in consumer finance. It's a real morass out there and always has been. And consumer protection law is about providing some defense for for the little guy because the reason we know so much about this is because it's our job. We study this day in and day out and we see other people's problems and we learn about it by digging into those problems to solve them. Not everybody can develop this level of knowledge and the breadth of background. It's not feasible. We do it professionally. So it's really unfair that every consumer in this country has to navigate these issues and avoid these problems because everybody else has lives of their own and professions of their own that they need to be on top of. <laughs> you shouldn't have to be a master of all of these things just to avoid getting jerked around and, and costing yourself a bunch of money. But that's why we do this. It's why we've got the show and we're putting the information out there so people can avoid these problems. Yes. And this is Mike Poulton with Poulton and Arroyan. Yes. And I don't do this kind of law. But my wife does. This is Rochelle Fulton. <laughs> and this is what I love. Um, With Arizona Credit Law Group and X-Firm and Parachute BK, here to serve you for your financial transaction planning needs. If you're getting ready to buy a house, buy a car, change jobs, invest, plan for retirement, whatever financial changes you have coming, X-Firm and Rochelle will help you get squared away. Fix your credit, fix your debt situation, Get, get a plan in place and help guide you through the process so that your financial goals are achieved. Awesome. So legitimate. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Rochelle Poulton, your host. See you next time. 